0: What I want you to do is stick with what got us here tonight. We're mentally and physically tough, okay? Final seconds off
1: the clock, and Indiana has won the WNBA championship for the very first time. Reaching the top of the mountain for then-fever coach Lynn Dunn, a long way from those rough early days. The pre-Title IX era, when just getting her college girls team to a game, was a challenge.
0: Uh, because we used to pile in the back of my, pile in my red impala, you know, and drive down the road an hour and play somebody, get back in the car and drive back.
1: Forty years later, Lynn is still paving a path forward for female athletes.
0: If you guys know me, you, you know that, that I love to win. I can't stand to lose. With the first pick, the Indiana Fever select Aaliyah Boston, University of South Carolina. <laughs>
1: Lynn Dunn, high hopes for her beloved Indiana fever, life as a player and coach before Title IX, and growing up in small-town Tennessee, where the backyard was all about high-jumping, pole vaulting, boxing, just about every other sport under the sun. She's my guest on this edition of the Business and Beyond podcast. Thanks for joining us on this edition of the Business and Beyond podcast. It is presented by PNC. I'm Gary Dick. Lynn Dunn, a women's sports pioneer born ahead of her time. An athlete growing up in a Tennessee family where competition was the name of the game. High school girl sports back in the late 60s, illegal in some southern states. Then Title IX came along and Lynn Dunn no longer had to coach for free, beg for gym time, or pile her team into her Impala just to get to games. And it gives me a great deal of pleasure to welcome to the podcast Hall of Famer, the uh, general manager of the Indiana Fever, Lynn Dunn. Lynn, thanks so much for uh, taking the time to join me. Hey, um, you've got to be excited. You've been busy uh, here, here lately with the draft, and a lot of buzz around uh, uh, the draft picks, the number one overall pick. you got a great player from uh, South Carolina in uh, Aaliyah, Boston. Tell me about – and an IU player, want to talk about that too. But give me your overall thoughts on the draft.
0: Well, I thought we did a really, really good job. You know, uh, you just never know how the draft's going to go. The only sure thing is the number one pick because we pick first. But we did our homework. You know, there wasn't any doubt in our mind that Aaliyah Boston was the pick. You know, that she was going to be the – type player that would come in here and have a huge impact on us on the court and off the court created a lot of attention. Like you said, the word, the buzz about the fever uh, with Boston. But then I think as the draft went along, when we picked up Grace Berger from IU, we picked up Taylor Mikesell from Ohio state, I, I think we sent a message that we wanted some more Midwest players and um, who were very, very good. and had tremendous careers. So you know we started out with the bang and i thought the whole thing was kind of a bang
1: yeah yeah what and you mentioned you know iu had such a magical year uh, this year uh, a great year so much excitement the packed houses down there i think i saw some social media posts of you down there a couple times maybe checking out uh, some of the action what what does that number one i know you're drafting to get the best players but is it an added bonus? What does that add to get a player from IU or, as you said, uh, an Ohio State player as well? To get that Big Ten flavor, does that kind of add to uh, maybe uh, the fan excitement, fan interest in the coming years?
0: Well, I think it's just like icing on the cake. You know, the cake's wonderful to begin with. And then you put the icing on it and it happens to be uh, some uh, one player an hour away, another player a couple hours away who had tremendous careers uh, in the Big Ten. And everybody in this area knows about the Big Ten. This is Big Ten headquarters. So uh, it was just kind of a plus-plus that these two players that we picked up uh, at 7 and 13 not only were Midwest players, uh, but but were great players. Uh, They had had tremendous careers. Uh, Both stayed for their fifth year, and I think that's important to mention because they got bigger, they got better, they got stronger. I, I saw the difference in both of them uh, by the end of their fifth year. So uh, excited about both.
1: Fever have had a, a tough several years here, no doubt about it. Uh, I read something where you were quoted as saying one of the one of the issues may have been a, the uh, the lack of a real identity. As you look at the identity of this fever team going forward with these new draft picks, the uh, the nucleus of what's there now going forward, what. Can you identify or 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 describe what you'd like that identity to be? Well, I
0: don't think there's any doubt that when Tamika Catchings was here, uh, you know, one of the great players all time in the history of women's basketball, four-time Olympian, gold medal Olympian, that was a focal point of our championship. When she retired, that's when we lost a a piece of our identity. In that, we will defend. We will we will defend you twenty-four-seven. Uh, uh, that that intensity, that that fierceness, that competitiveness uh, that she had all those years, uh, it's hard to replace. And and, and I think we struggled uh, re- re- replacing that. And then during that period of time, there were some other changes. Kelly Crosscop left. I left. Stephanie White left. So we had some turnover uh, in leadership too. And so I think it's now we I think I think now we're in a position where we're going to get back on track re-emphasize our, our our identity, who we want to be, create some stability in upper management, uh, by and then create some credibility uh, by the players that we're drafting.
1: Yeah. And I know you can't answer this, but in terms of a, a rebuild, you know, I've seen some people say that, you know, this is a rebuild for the Fever, but not necessarily something that would take a long time. You know, that this is something that you can get back on track without – uh, you know, a, a long uh, and elongated process. Would you agree with that?
0: I think, I think we are actually a little bit ahead of schedule of my three-year plan. This is year two. Last year, we drafted five young rookies, exceptional. This year, we, we drafted five more. We picked up a couple of key players in pre-agency, some veterans, a new coaching staff. Um, so I feel like we are... Where we need to be, and, and a little bit ahead with with reloading. Let's call it reloading, Yeah. because a field sounds uh, much lengthier. Yeah, and I, it has to be. I, I honestly believe uh, that we can compete this year for that last spot in the in the playoffs. That, that we the the four of us that didn't get in last year, you know, have enough firepower. Uh, to get in the Knicks and fight to get to into the playoffs, and that's exactly yeah. what we want to do. We want our fans to come back, you know, be with us the whole season, cheer us on, love the way we play, how hard we play, how we defend, how much better we've gotten, but we're so young, and and then get excited about chasing that last playoff spot. That's that's what we want to do.
1: Yeah, yeah. You are back. I think you served in the GM role on in an interim basis now, now full time but you had been in kind of retirement, right? And uh, you came out of that retirement. And I know I I saw a quote that you said the Indiana Fever would be the only franchise that you would come back, come out of retirement for.
0: Well, there's no doubt about that. I mean, I, I retired in 14. I have a consulting company. I coach coaches and I have several clients that I was working with in the college game. And then when when the Fever management reached out to me, it asked me to come back on an inward basis, I, it was, I couldn't say no. You know, I, I have so much respect for Rick Fusen and Jim Morris and Kelly Crosscop and the Pacers and the Pacers Sports and Entertainment. And um, I, I love the fever. And, and, and I wanted to do whatever I could do to, to help get this franchise back where it should be. Uh, And I thought I could do, you know, I wasn't sure the interim title. And then I realized it's going to take, you know, it's going to take longer than six months. So I I, I was committed once I met with Rick, you know, to coming up with a a three-year plan. Here's what we want to do year one. Here's what we want to do year two. And this is year three. And so I thought, well, am I going to be interim for three years? (laughs) (laughs) And so I I realized that that might adversely affect us in free agency. You know, the the players – uh, and the agents want to know who's who's in charge, you know. this And so I, I agreed to take that off and, and invest over the next three, four years and get us where we need to be. You know, once you get in those playoffs, anything can happen.
1: Right, right. You
0: no, know, ever thought we'd win a championship when we didn't have home court. So you just got to get in, you know. And then then you just kind of got like clawed up, and, <laughs> and you know you're doing something you you hadn't expected to do.
1: Yeah. Well, Lynn, you've been around the game for a long time at uh, the highest levels. How would you assess the state of the women's game? Because, you know, as I look at it, and certainly this year in the college game, closer to home, IU uh, certainly got a lot of attention. But if you look at the TV viewership numbers, record numbers on ESPN for the Final Four and the, uh, the tournament, uh, I, I think the pro level, I think, um, I think the draft, maybe uh, WNBA draft got record numbers uh, as well. How would you assess the state of the, the, the women's game seems to be in a, in a pretty good place.
0: Well, I, I would use the word exploded. It's exploded. I mean, it's, it's amazing. But I'm not surprised. I think we're seeing all of the benefits, the fruits of Title IX, these young women getting opportunities when they're three and four years old and five, and they're getting great, great coaching in junior high and high school, fantastic coaching in college. They play a fan, uh, an unbelievably competitive game. You know, they can look at Caitlin Clark. My goodness gracious. She reminds me of Steph Curry. Yeah. Uh, so, so we have a wonderful product uh, that people enjoy watching. And so th- this explosion that's happened, I'm hoping it's contagious. I'm hoping it's going to be contagious all across America, not just in the Big Ten. Big Ten had record crowds. The Final Four in Dallas was, was huge. The, the viewership was 9.9 million, uh, highest we've ever had. So uh, I hope, I'm hope i hopeful that it's going to carry over to the WNBA and it's going to continue to explode.
1: You mentioned Title IX uh, and certainly uh, in this year, 50 years, uh, marking 50 years since the, the passage of that landmark legislation authored by Indiana Senator Birch Bayh. And you have been just a staunch supporter and driver of Title Nine for a lot of years. I know I read somewhere where you were described as an agitator and an instigator for Title IX equality. How, how would you, would you agree with that assessment?
0: Well, that's a kind assessment, agitator, <laughs> instigator. Uh, you know, a lot of people um, felt strongly that, that Title IX was not legal and it was not going to work and it was going to cost men's sports. Uh, and that was not true. And we see now that there's no, there's no reason why both men and women's sports can't be successful. Um, but, but we had to keep pushing and we had to keep fighting. We had to keep protecting. Uh, we had to treasure a piece of legislation that means so much to, to, to women's opportunities. And so, uh, you know, I, I coached before Title IX. I know what it was like. And I've seen the growth and the opportunities and that have been opened, the doors that have been opened for women. And, and it's powerful.
1: Yeah. what Lynn, talk about, give me some of, uh, some of the stories, some of the examples, because I think so many women, girls in, in the game today, you'll never experienced, you know, pre-Title IX. So really probably don't fully appreciate how things were back in the day. And back, not only when you coached, but when you you were a young athlete and you just didn't ha- hardly have the opportunities. What was it like in, in that scenario?
0: Well, I you know, I, I spent... My early years in Alabama, and it was against the law for girls to play high school basketball. So I did not get to play high school basketball until we moved to Tennessee. And then I got to play two years in high school. I'd get to college. There are no no teams. There are no basketball teams. This is in the 60s um, in the universities. No scholarships, nothing. We we played a little badminton, a little tennis, you know, uh, sports that were ladylike, that were acceptable. (laughs) And and so um, we're, we're talking going from slim and none to unbelievable opportunities. You know, uh, then when I first started coaching, it was still before Title Nine, no budget, you know, couldn't use the gym, only use the gym at 6 a.m. or 9 p.m. at 9, but nobody else needs it and just limited resources. And um, it was tough. It was really hard. And, and, and the best thing that happened to us was Title Nine. And the the men and women that pushed for that legislation to become law and that that be implemented and it be enforced and it's been a it's it's been a catalyst for unbelievable opportunities for girls and women.
1: Yeah, and the uh, the impact has had I know immeasurable to be uh, to be sure. You mentioned in the coach in the coaching game and you know just access to facilities and and those types of things. How how tough was it to coach? In that kind of that pre Title IX environment,
0: unbelievably tough. I, I look back now sometimes, and you know, I had no assistance. I had no. I, I was actually the volunteer coach.
1: I so I read that that you coached. I went to your coach for no pay.
0: When I started out at Austin Peay way back nineteen seventy, I was a physical education teacher and the cheerleader sponsor. I brought the cheerleaders sure. around, and so I said, "Hey, look, we we've got to have some teams for these women. We've got to have." volleyball, basketball, and tennis. And they just said, well, you can have it, but you're not going to have a budget. I don't know when you're going to get in the gym. And so, you know, it was just me saying, hey, I didn't get to play, but I'm going to see if you want to play. So it was just, you know, historic for me. I think about the different places that I worked where I gave the first ever scholarship, you know, or a female athlete in one of those sports. And now to see what they have, sometimes it's just overwhelming to me The when I worked a few years at Kentucky and the first time I went with them on a charter flight and I I took a picture of the airplane, I couldn't believe (laughs) how big the plane was that this team was getting on. And I'm like, Oh my goodness. Uh, Because we used to pile in the back of my pile in my red Impala, you know, and drive down the road an hour and play somebody, get back in the car and drive back. And so it was just, amazing to see the progress.
1: To keep the momentum going and to keep, uh, you know, to, to leverage, to take advantage uh, of the positive when it comes to women's sports and athletics. Uh, are there things that need, as we're present day, 2023, new challenges, opportunities, those types of things, what needs to happen? Is there, is there something that you'd like to see happen in, the, in, the, in women's athletics, whether it's basketball or, or any sport, to keep that momentum going?
0: Well, I think the visibility that we've gotten with with TV packages, and I'm looking forward to seeing what the new TV package is going to be for the college women's game. I know they're going to renegotiate the contract and let the women stand alone, what our TV package will be like uh, in the WNBA. But the other thing that I'm hoping for, I'm hoping that we will learn some lessons from the path that the men have already gone down. You know, we don't have to do everything just like they've done it. Um, So we can say, oh, that was a good idea or that wasn't a good idea. So I think we'll I hope we'll use Big Brother as an example of what works and what might not be the right thing to do.
1: We'll have much more with Indiana Fever General Manager Lynn Dunn. Uh, When we return, we'll talk about uh, early days growing up in Tennessee and uh, a Hall of Fame career, more than 500 wins and a lot more when the Business and Beyond podcast returns. Welcome back to the Business and Beyond podcast presented by PNC. I'm Gary Dick, and my um, guest this week, really happy to have Lynn Dunn, the Hall of Fame uh, coach, the current general manager of the Indiana Fever, and, and truly a pioneer uh, in uh, in athletics. And uh, Lynn, you're a Tennessee native, right? Born in Nashville. Born in Nashville. Now, where's, I, I saw uh, Dresden. Where's Dresden? Uh,
0: Dresden is way over in the northwest corner of Tennessee. I don't know if you've ever heard of a place called Real Foot Lake. It's a beautiful little area. I'm 15 miles from the Kentucky border. Uh, Murray State University is sure. up there
1: in
0: the yeah. there that way is Paducah, Kentucky. Uh, but small little town, Weakley County, UT Martin, where I went to college is there. Dresden, where I went, played two years of high school basketball is there. I actually have a home. My grandparents built it. My Mother inherited it, and now I have it.
1: Oh, that's great! It's pretty country there. What um, what was uh, what was growing up like uh, in Tennessee for for you?
0: Well, I was very fortunate that I I was born into a family of highly educated people, highly competitive people. People always ask me how did you get so competitive, and I said, well, my my father was a Marine that ran track at Vanderbilt, and so he pushed us twenty four seven. Uh, my grandfather was the county judge uh, you know my my aunt was uh, the first woman to get a uh, one of the first women to get a law degree at at Vanderbilt my grandmother taught her wow. in one schoolhouse. So everybody was always pushing us to be educated and to be competitive and so i it's just part of who i am uh,
1: yes yeah i was going to say you know it, it shouldn't be a surprise then you know in terms of being competitive being a pioneer pushing and doing the things you've done around title nine and some of these other things kind of came naturally, right? From your family. Absolutely.
0: And of course I'm a firstborn, first grandchild. Uh, and then I'm a Taurus bull. So, I mean, you put that all together and gracious.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Look out. <laughs> what, um, so you played, you play all sports, any kind of sports you could uh, be around.
0: You know, my, like I said, my father, we had a bull job. Uh, we had a, Uh, a high jump pole vaulting pit in the backyard we played baseball softball football boxing we had boxing gloves (laughs) and he put my brother and i through the whole thing
1: that is outstanding you mentioned uh university of tennessee martin that's where you went to college did you think about going anywhere else or is that just a a natural choice
0: 10 miles down the road could afford to go, You know, got one of those, I forget what they call them, the student loans. We, we couldn't afford, you know, there were no scholarships and loved every minute of it. But unfortunately, they just – we still hadn't started the teams. Now, yeah. we, did, like, we did play some competitive badminton, played a little bit of competitive tennis. And so, once I left there, got my degree and went UT Knoxville to get my master's, you know, I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to be a physical education teacher. I'm going to be a coach. And I'm going to create some opportunities for for women that I didn't get. So wherever I go to work, I'm going to make sure we have teams.
1: So that so that seed was kind of planted by your experiences in 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 high school and college. That kind of has drove you to do that.
0: Well, and I think I drove the people at UT Martin crazy because I couldn't understand why we didn't have a women's basketball team. They were starting up, or Middle Tennessee State, Tennessee Tech. You know, why don't we have a team? Why don't we have a team? And I think they were really glad when I graduated. <laughs> but the next year, this is really interesting. the next year, they did start that first ever women's basketball team at UT Martin, and Pat Hen Summit was a freshman on that first ever team.
1: Really? wow. when when did you first? Is that when you first first met, or when did you first connect with her?
0: Well, I'd known Pat for a while because we played summer softball together, you know, where, where you traveled around. And uh, I, I'd actually followed her high school uh, career, and I was hoping that she would come to Austin Peay, Um, which was only about, I don't know, 30, 40 minutes from her home. And then I later found out that she wanted to get a further away from home. <laughs> she was <she laughs> on that farm with her dad and, Baylin Hay and everything, and she said, "Look, uh, Coach, I got to get at least two hours away." You know, I get it. So we 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 were friends for for a long, long time.
1: What describe your relationship? Because she, you know, so well documented the impact that she had on so many players and and individuals throughout uh, her many years in the game uh, and beyond. Describe your relationship uh, with her.
0: Pat and I will always of co- coaching friends, colleagues, off the court, you know, we, we've kind of grown up together in Tennessee. Um, the, the great thing about Pat was she was not only a great coach, but she was a great person. And, and if you played for her or if you were her friend, it was for lot. You know what I'm saying? Like she wanted you to be the very best that you could be on the court and off the court. She was extremely demanding. She wasn't quite as demanding as Bobby and I, but she had those tendencies
1: yeah.
0: of, of, of "Hey, we're going to do this really well all the time, and not just anybody could play for."
1: Yeah, yeah. Would you consider was she a mentor of yours? You're more of a colleague or mentor? Or well, a-
0: we were more more side by side. Yeah, you know. Yeah, we had we did clinics together. We uh, we went on basketball retreats together. Uh, Sometimes she would reach out to me about a particular strategy and I would reach out to her, but, but I always had enormous respect for her and what she was able to accomplish. And and, and the great thing about Pat is, and the game grew. She adapted. One of the things Pat did is, and this is something Bobby didn't do. She adapted to the changing of how we're going to treat players. Yeah. but we're not, we can't be quite as, we can be demanding, but we can't be demeaning. And so that was one of the things that I thought was great about Pat is that she adapted to the change of times of how we're going to treat players. We're still going to make them be the best they can be. But some of the things that we've done in the past were not acceptable. And so I give her, I give her a lot of credit for that.
1: Yeah, did you did you have any? You know, everyone has mentors to a certain degree. Do you can you identify mentors who were very important in your in your career in your life?
0: Well, I would say Jody Conrad that coached at Texas. I I was her assistant coach for the Pan Am team. Learned a lot from Jody. Uh, Of course, when I was coaching for two years at Ole Miss, Margaret the Margaret Wade that that led Delta State to three national championships uh, was right down the road, and I have some tremendous. Respect for her and what she accomplished there, uh, and and then my my mentors were probably people you know outside Billie Jean King, my grandmother, um, uh, my aunt that that went to Vanderbilt, strong, powerful women that were creating opportunities for other women.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, you, you mentioned being a uh, your your desire to be a, a, a PE teacher and a coach. Did you did you anticipate uh, you know being more than a high school coach or maybe a college coach if any design on doing what you ended up doing you know coaching at a very at the highest level.
0: I started out in, as a french mate. <laughs> uh, and and that lasted about two weeks until the instructor said you know miss Lynn, you're destroying one of the most beautiful languages in the history of the world, I'd like to suggest you change majors. <laughs> and, I, and I think you're right. And so the, I knew I wanted to be around sports, but I didn't know the route. And at that particular time in the 60s, it was through health, physical education, recreation. So I switched to that major. And then when I got my degree, uh, another mentor of mine who, who coached, and who taught there at UT March, she said, you need to go on to college. You need to get your master's at UT Knoxville and then work in college and help create these opportunities that you didn't have. I said, I was, I'm all in, you know, and she helped me get a, a graduate assistantship in, in Knoxville. And then from then on, it was Austin V. you know, Ole Miss, University of Miami, Purdue. Yeah. Always in college loved it. Wouldn't trade it for the world.
1: Well, and and this is, you know, and I'm sure you've been asked this a number of times before. I always think it's an unfair question, but as you look back on your career, uh, is, is there, you know, a most rewarding aspect uh, of your coaching career that you, you kind of lean or reflect back on?
0: I think my legacy, when all said and done, will be that wherever I worked, wherever I coached or taught, when I left, it was better than when I got there. Mm-hmm. I was able to make things better. Uh, make opportunities greater, get better resources, improve the team, improve the, everything about the situation that I came into. And so I don't know if that means I'm a builder. I don't know what it means. But to me, to be able to come in and then when you leave, things are better. And I yeah. always felt my players, do my players get better? Do they get a little bit better every day? Do they get better from the beginning of the season to the end? And then then I'll succeed
1: yeah. i got to ask you about the 2012 WNBA Championship here with the Fever. What's your favorite memory or remembrance of that year? Because it was certainly special for Indianapolis. I know a lot of people want to get uh, get the Fever back to that that level, to be sure. But think back to that uh, that season and, and how special it was uh, for you.
0: Well, the minute you said that, the, 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 the thing that came into my mind was the fact that we weren't supposed to be there. We weren't supposed to be in the Finals. And when you look back to that crucial playoff game, uh, you know, where we we had to win the third game in Atlanta. We had to win the third game in Connecticut um, in order to do that. But 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 most of all, I remember us fighting through adversity. Somebody would get hurt. Katie Douglas uh, breaks her ankle, goes down. And Jeanette Poland steps up and hits five threes in Connecticut. And we win that game. And then Jeanette Poland hurts her knee. And then Karima Christmas steps up. And Mm -hmm. so it was just a a moment in time where no matter what adversity we faced, we found a way to deal with it. And so as as we fought through adversity, we just got stronger and stronger. We had less players, but but we – we were really able to pull together, and to be able to beat Minnesota without home court advantage. Yeah. Sometimes I still have to pull out that film and look at it, and make sure that did we really
1: <laughs> did that really happen? Yeah, right, right. That
0: really happened.
1: Uh, Lynn, I- you've had such a uh, a long and successful career, but it, you know, as we wind up here, it seems to me that you're, if anything, energized uh, about uh, what what's next uh, with the Fever. Coming off a big draft here. And as you say, uh, you're you're uh, you know well into this plan to get the, the Fever back on track. What energized, re-energized, what would be the best uh, description uh, for Lynn Dunn heading into this next season?
0: I'm very enthusiastic and very energized about the young talent that we have. I'm just really excited about our new coaching staff. Christy Sides and the experiences that she's already had in the W. And overseas, um, she is high energy. She's from the South. You know, she's a wonderful person to be around. She understands the value of relationships. And she's put together a very strong coaching staff. So I'm, there's a lot to be excited about. The draft picks, the free agents, the coaching staff. And then on top of that now, talking about the icing on the cake, we are back in the beautiful gamebridge unbelievably renovated, which I always thought it was beautiful anyway, um, arena. And so we were back practicing here all the time. We're back playing here all the time. Uh, So there's really a lot of things in line here for us to get back on track. And we just need the fans to come back. We just need them to come back for our 20 home games, opening night, May 19th, uh, and just get on board with us and remember what it was like when we won that championship, and I'll never forget that crowd. I'll, that that was just fantastic, was Special, yeah, yeah. wonderful. And, uh, and but we can. There's no reason why we can't do it again.
1: Yeah, hey, Lynn, you mentioned it. I would uh, just one more uh, topic is that that reimagined, uh, refurbished uh, Gainbridge Fieldhouse because uh, not only inside, but now the plaza and that uh, area outside. So uh, you know, I think the ingredients are there for fans to come down and see some great basketball, but also engage in what is going to be a pretty electric kind of atmosphere or vibe that's uh, around this new Gamebridge Fieldhouse.
0: There's no doubt, you know, the Gamebridge the, the, the Fieldhouse now with the adjoining closet that they built, the new restaurants, it's a destination. It's, you can come down, you can eat um, two different restaurants. We've got our gorgeous facility, the outdoor fort, Mel Rains, and Rick on and, 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 Herb Simon have done a fantastic job creating this wonderful new, I guess you, they're calling it the plaza, mm-hmm. uh, the uh, uh, Cambridge Fieldhouse for for the fans to come back downtown. It's yep. revitalizing, in my opinion, downtown Indy.
1: Or look forward to uh, coming down and checking out the uh, the Fever, the new draft picks, and and much more in downtown Indianapolis. Lynn Dunn has been a real treat uh, to. Uh, Catch up with you, talk a little bit about your amazing Hall of Fame career, and also look forward to some big wins for the Indiana Fever. Thanks for joining us. And thank you for joining us on this edition of the Business and Beyond podcast. It's a weekly conversation with achievers in business, sports, entertainment, and beyond. And you can download all of our episodes and get Indiana Business News 24-7 at InsideIndianaBusiness.com. I'm Gary Dick. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.